If you'd open your Bible and turn to Psalm 95, that's where we're going to be this morning. And we're talking about corporate worship and uh, why we gather to sing, and what we do when we gather, and why we gather and, and do these things. Um, the, the title of the talk this morning is Come Together. If we had a sermon bumper, we might have had the Beatles song sort of playing under it, you know, come together. But we don't have sermon bumpers, so we don't have that song. But music is a powerful, powerful thing, isn't it? Um, I, I, I bet if we could each tell stories about the moment where you felt something um, transcendent maybe about music, maybe the first time um, you were at a, the concert of your favorite band, or, or maybe it was a symphony, you know, and you, you attend uh, kind of a, a symphony playing one of the great uh, composers, and you experience it, and you think, okay, there, this is remarkable, wow, there was nothing like this, and you, someone asks you, you know, how was it, or what was it like, and you find yourself saying, I don't know, you just had to have been there, there was just this moment, and then they, they did this, or, you know, if it's, a, if it's a band, you know, they started riffing this way, and they went on, and they played this song, but it was nothing like the CD, because they kept it, you know, and you're thinking, wow, 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 and we understand that music, there's something um, transcendent, maybe something, something rapturous about music, the way that it lifts us up. There, there, it's, 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 it's beautiful how it does that. And yet, our corporate worship is much more than simply the power of music. There's something else going on in it. Now, if you know um, a little bit about me or my story, I kind of began in ministry in the music world, in the kind of worship world. Um, when I was in middle school back in Malaysia, we had a youth group that was very student-led, and so they had students that would take charge and, and, and lead different things, and so the gal that was in charge of the worship for our junior high group, you know, about 50 kids or whatever, uh, came to me one day and said, Glenn, you know, I know you play the piano and all this stuff, would you ever consider leading worship uh, for the junior high group? And, and at the time, I was convinced that, um, that my, I, I wanted to preach, and so I was, you know, 13 or 14, and I said to her, I said, you know, I don't know. I don't think music's not really my calling, you know, I don't think I'm going to do this, and, uh, and she said, why don't you just try, you know, so I said, okay, and, and, and they scheduled me maybe a month, you know, a month out, and they said, okay, a month out, this is when you're, you're going to lead worship, well, every night just about, between that day and the date that I was scheduled to lead worship, I kept thinking about all the song lists, I kept thinking about the songs I was going to sing, and, and, and how things could go together, and remember, this is like the early 90s, um, and Malaysia's a little bit behind where things were in the States, so I'm thinking about Bob Fitz songs, and, uh, and all the Hosanna tapes, and all the stuff, and I'm thinking, okay, how can we get to celebrate Jesus, celebrate, you know, you know, and, and just sort of you know, thinking through the list, and every night I just sort of tweak it a little bit and change it and all this stuff. And then the, the day came to, to lead worship, and I just loved it. I mean, it was like I came alive. I just enjoyed it so much, and I kept, I kept uh, leading worship, being involved in worship. And eventually, as I got a little bit older, I, I was the student leader for the high school worship group. And, and uh, then when I came to the States to go to college, I was a theology major, but I, I stayed involved with music um, uh, at, at ORU and helped with the praise and worship stuff for chapels and all of that. Uh, and then when I moved out here to be at New Life, uh, really why I came out here was to be an apprentice to Pastor Ross Parsley, who was the worship pastor at the time. And, and apprentice, if you're unfamiliar with how things work in the church world, is a fancy way of saying you don't get paid, uh, but we really want you here. <laughs> and, and, and so, uh, and maybe that's the way it is in the corporate world too, but but uh, and so, so I came out and they gave me a family in the church to live with and then I had a little stipend every month. 
But wherever Ross went, I went. So if he was at a funeral, I was the piano player for that funeral. If he was at the, a wedding, I was the piano player at that wedding, you know. And, uh, and it was a great experience, just kind of uh, shadowing him and watching him. And all of you that have been around, if you've been around New Life for the last few years, you, you know that um, corporate worship in particular is something uh, that the Lord seems to have had His hand on, even at New Life Church. And we've, we've experienced songs that have come out of it and, and powerful times in His presence. And we, we understand that something amazing happens when the people of God gather together to sing and to worship. But you know, I've noticed something. In the last couple of years, we've really been concerned with people um, not misunderstanding or not thinking that worship is just what we do in here. And so there's been all this emphasis to say, well, look, you know, worship is, is much more than the singing and much more than, than what we, we say and do on Sundays. And so worship is, is what we do out there. And, and even to some extent, people have said, well, look, it's all worship and everything's worship and everything we do is worship. And, and you know what? That's, um, there's truth to that. Uh, it is all worship in some ways. Paul says in, in Romans 12, you know, 12, look, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Everything you're doing can be lifted up to God as worship. And yet, if it is all just the same, if it is all just worship, then why does this matter? Or maybe even if we step back further and say, does this matter? Does corporate worship matter? Because if it's all worship, then look, in Colorado, I'd rather be worshiping while I'm on the trail. Not, not me specifically, but some <laughs> people would say that. Sean might say that up the incline or, you know, and if it, because you say, well, look, when I'm, on, when I'm hiking or when I'm doing this, I feel close to God or when I'm out in the hammock or in the tent or whatever, I just, you know, this, I worship there. And it's certainly true that you do worship there. And something does happen as you encounter God in, in, in those moments. Last Sunday evening, I was speaking at a, a, a retreat center that, that just opened up a new facility in Divide, uh, Colorado, where they, they have these trails and, and you can sit on a different bench and have a different view of the mountains and in, uh, each bench is kind of named a particular thing like you know meditation or reflection or whatever. And, and, and it's really wonderful and it taps into some of the great mystical traditions that the church has had and it's, it's marvelous. But my question for us this morning is, if it's all worship, is there anything special about corporate worship? Is there anything special about coming together? Because if not, then do as you like, right? As long as you can worship God, worship God. If it's on the trail, great. If it's with people, great. If you like that band, good. If you don't like that band, then don't listen to them. Or is there something bigger than all of this that we're missing when we think about corporate worship. If you turn with me to Psalm 95, we're going to take this psalm in three stages. This psalm is, imagine it to be like a song that has three stanzas. Uh, no real chorus, but three stanzas. And, and each stanza kind of develops a different theme, like a good songwriter would in a song. And so we're going to read the first few verses of Psalm 95. It says this, Come let us sing, for, sing out loud to the Lord. Let's raise a joyful shout to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before Him with thanks. Let's shout songs of joy to Him. The Lord is a great God, the great King over all other gods. The earth's depths are in His hands. The mountain heights belong to Him. This is beautiful poetry writing here. If you're into songwriting or lyric writing, he's contrasting the depths and the heights. I mean, he's He's got it covered here in this poetry. And the sea which he made is his along with the dry ground. 
the message here is, it's all God's earth, it's all God's world, which His own hands formed. One of the first things we see from this first stanza of Psalm 95 is that when we come together in corporate worship, we are to come with joyful hearts. Come with joyful hearts. Now, joy is an interesting thing. Because if if we are containers and joy is the water, then we are like Harry Belafonte saying, we've got a hole in our bucket, you know? There's the joy just keeps leaking out. There's something that keeps spilling out of here. We just can't keep it. There's a hole in the bucket. We can't do it. Life has a way of squeezing joy out of us and, and, and eliminating it. And if I were just to say to you this morning, well, just come with joy, just come with joyful hearts, you'd say, well, Glenn, you don't know my life. You don't know my story. You don't know. That's not so simple. Just say, well, come with joyful hearts. The psalmist says in verse 2, let's come before him with thanks, or some translations might say with thanksgiving. And I think this is a key here because I think joy begins with gratitude. Joy begins with gratitude. Gratitude is a game changer. Think about this. Life has a way of making us look inward and think about all that's wrong and all that's not working and how come this hasn't happened and how come this. And And it kind of makes us turn inward, but gratitude makes us turn outward. And it makes us start saying, okay, wait a minute, what could I be thankful for today? Uh, Maybe it sort of turns you into like a CSI detective where you're looking for fingerprints of God at work in your life. You know know what? I think God's here. and I think this is the Lord blessing. You know, let's be grateful for this. Let's thank God for breath today. Let's thank God for this today. Let's thank God for the sunshine today. Let's thank... And gratitude all of a sudden begins to change your world. Last summer, Holly read a a book that um, became quite a popular book called um, A Thousand Gifts or One Thousand Gifts by Ann Voskamp. And... um, there, there, are, there are definitely some things you may agree with, you may disagree with as you read it, but it's a very interesting uh, story about a, a woman, she's on a farm, is that right? And, and she's gone through a lot of a tragedy in her life, but kind of learns a bit of the secret of thankfulness and gratitude, and uh, I think even begins a gratitude journal or, or something like that. And, and several of you have maybe done things like this, but, but where maybe every day you, you got up and you wrote down in your journal just... Two things that you're thanking God for today. And it's amazing how gratitude is a game changer. It just begins to change your outlook. And all of a sudden, it's not the world is closing in and the sky is falling. It's God, you're the king of the earth, like the psalmist says. But you know, gratitude isn't possible when you live life expecting things out of others. Expectation is a gratitude killer. And think about that even in all of your relationships. When husbands and wives come to expect things of one another without asking, instead of asking things of one another, we we develop expectations. What happens when the other spouse or the other person meets that expectation? Nothing. (laughs) Because I expected it. Do you guys, my mortgage company doesn't send me a thank you card every month. Do you guys get one? Does a utility company send you a note to say, got your, bi- got your check, thanks so much, hope you have a great week. <laughs> when you expect something to happen and it happens, the best case scenario is silence. 
When you expect something to happen and then it happens, the best case scenario is silence. You say, well, yeah, well, you should have done that. But life changes. The way of the kingdom is the way of petition and request. Not expectation, but petition. Right? So the Psalms, the psalmists are full of thanksgiving because they're also full of asking. <laughs> they're all, if you read the Psalms, they're always saying, God, do this. God, save us. God, deliver. And then when he does, they say, all right. Woo! And if he doesn't, they just keep on asking, God, come on. Expectation, when at the very best, leads to silence. Expectation, when it's unmet, at the very worst, leads to frustration. And now we're on the bad sort of spiral, where you spiral from expectation to frustration to cynicism to whatever it is, and all of a sudden life is closed in. But imagine the other way around where these psalmists are saying, God, we look to you. Several weeks ago when we talked about Acts 3, we said, look, the power of healing in the name of Jesus is not about a, ma- it's not a magic formula. Because to treat the name of Jesus like magic is to demand things of God. It's to say, God, I expect this from you. So how come you haven't? And instead of saying, God, I ask this of you. I seek this of you. I'm knocking on the door for this. And then when God does, see, when he does that, you are free to be grateful. You're free to be grateful. If joy begins with gratitude... We'll never become a grateful people if we're always living with expectation. God owes me. Life owes me. The world owes me. Nobody owes you. But we say, well, God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Gratitude leads to joy. So if joy begins with gratitude, on the back end, joy culminates in praise. Joy begins with gratitude, but it culminates with praise. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are, but it's because the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. In other words, joy is not full until joy turns into praise. Now, this, look, this sounds like a deep philosophical idea, but it's as simple as on a hot sunny day enjoying a nice ice cream cone from Maggie Moose, and when you're enjoying it so much, you say, oh, this is the best chocolate I've had. You can't help but praise it because you found joy in it. Does that make sense? When I was in college, we did these trips with um, teams to um, do music ministry, and uh, we would go overseas for about a month. I spent a month in Nigeria one summer, and then we'd come back, and we'd do uh, visits to different churches. And and one of the trips stateside, uh, we were driving from Colorado, actually, to Washington State. And I was the sort of 
kid that was, um, was, still am, uh, that's always paranoid about worst case scenarios. So when there's an overnight driving um, thing, overnight drive to be done, I was the guy that would secretly take it upon myself to keep the driver alert, you know. Uh, I, I, wasn't, I wouldn't do the driving, but I would be the one to sort of talk and keep the you know. So, so we were driving through the night, and we were going from Colorado to Washington. I, I don't remember when we started exactly, but, but there, you know, there's someone in the passenger seat, and I was sitting, I think, you know, in the first row, really on the floor where the, where the console is, and I was kind of had my back turned, leaning against it, and I'm talking and trying to keep the driver alert. And, and somehow it ended up that we were driving through, I think it was Utah, right as the sun was rising. And there were these beautiful, I don't know if it was canyons or rock forming, but there was this, all of a sudden, there was this breathtaking landscape just as the sun was rising. And then to top it all off, in the CD player was the soundtrack from Braveheart. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you can't, I mean, just, you could, you know, I, I might as well have been riding on a horse with long hair flowing in the wind, you know? I mean, it was just, it was an epic sort of moment. And in that moment, I wanted everybody in the van to wake up. <laughs> because you've got to see this. Look at this scenery. Like this is, oh my gosh. I didn't do that. And I think the rest of the team was grateful that I didn't wake them up. But that's what joy culminating in praise is. You see something and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, you've got to see this. The psalmist can't get over how great God is. And they want all of Israel to wake up and see how great God is. If we were to ask ourselves, what, are this, what is the psalmist joyful about? Specifically in Psalm 95, he says this, the Lord is a great God. He's the great King over all other gods. And then he starts talking all about creation and the earth's depths and the mountain's heights and the sea and the dry land and God formed it all. In the Old Testament, there are two major themes that kind of run through the Old Testament in particular. One is this, that God is the Creator God. That Yahweh is the Creator God. He is the God that is King over the world, over all the nations, over all other gods, over mountains and seas and all of it. But then the other theme is that God is our covenant God. So that this great King is not a distant king, but is our God. And in Psalm 95, you see both of these themes. First, in this first stanza, you see really this first theme. We're joyful about God because our God is king. Imagine in a schoolyard, you know, fight between a couple of boys and one, you know, inevitably it turns to my dad can beat up your dad and all of this stuff and and then the one kid says, well, my dad's here. But his dad is like scrawny and, you know, can't do anything. You know, it would be me, maybe. And, 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 and it does no good to say, well, that's my dad. Because the other bullies are like, yeah, but we ain't scared. But all of a sudden, if your dad's like this, like, I don't know, Rambo dude, you know, and starts walking into the playground and the kid's like, and you're like, that's my dad. Like, uh-oh. Israel is kind of like the scrawny kid on the schoolyard and all the big bullies of Assyria and Egypt and Babylon are always picking on them as they're fighting with each other and Israel's kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time and they're always being picked on. And this is the psalmist's way of saying, hey, our God is the great God. What's up now? 
Our God is the great king over all other kings. What you got, Babylon? That's a little bit like what this is like. No wonder they come with joy. No wonder they shout with singing because they know that their God is the great God. See, this I think is what happens in corporate worship. You come together and you've been practicing gratitude throughout the week and all of a sudden your gratitude has turned to joy and so on a Sunday morning you can't help but burst in joy and you sing, oh God, you're a great God during worship and then all of a sudden the person next to you who's like someone sleeping in the van while we're driving through Utah, all of a sudden they wake up and they say, oh, you're right, he is a great God. What am I, why am I living in this small-minded world? What happens is we begin to wake each other up in corporate worship as we begin to say, look, 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 this isn't all there is. This isn't all the whole story. There isn't, there's more than just Babylon and Egypt and Assyria and the bullies of this world. There's our God who's the great God. Oh, yeah. Well, let's sing. Let's shout. And our corporate joy begins to wake up joy in each other's hearts. The psalmist continues in the second stanza here, and he says in verse 6, Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our Maker. He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep in His hands. Now, which theme is this? This is the covenant God theme. This is that the great King is our God. So he says, come, now we say, we come with humble hearts. So we come with joyful hearts, but now here out of this stanza we say, no, you know what, we come with humble hearts, hearts that are humble, that are bowed down, that are in awe before our God. One of the great things about the Old Testament is that God is never described in an abstract way. He's never described the way we modern, western, rationalistic people maybe have been doing for centuries. We describe God as a concept. And God as a concept is the supreme, all-loving, all-powerful, all-good being. But when you describe God as a concept, you create intellectual crisis in in people's lives. Because then all of a sudden, if God is conceptually all-powerful, all-loving, then when life doesn't work out, you say, well, how come the all-powerful, all-loving being allowed this and this? But God is not a concept. See, the Greeks talked about philosophy that way. The Greeks talked about monotheism. There's only one, religion, one God, although they come up with that word. Though, of course, the Greek had a pantheon of gods. But Christians, the Hebrews, the children of Israel never talked about monotheism in one sense. They talk about mono-Yahwehism. It's not simply that conceptually there's only one great God, but rather our God is the only God. Yahweh is the only one. And God in the Bible is not talked about the way we talk about Him in apologetics class. Now, I'm grateful for apologetic stuff. I think there's room for it. I think there's, there's a place for it. I think it helps. It may help bolster our faith. I've uh, it rarely, in my opinion, may help convert uh, an unconverted or an atheist, but it may help the converted be glad about what they think. That may be good. But apologetics never produced worship. Because all that does is it deals with God as a concept. It deals with God as the unmoved mover, 
the intelligent designer, the supreme force. Great. That's, those are concepts. But the God in the Bible is named. He's named as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or in the New Testament, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, na- he's named. So when the psalmist says, the Lord our God, our Maker, come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker, for we are the people of His pasture, sheep of His hand. This is personal language. This is not, let's worship the abstract force who holds the universe together. Come on. It's, you know, it's like, it's like talking about a beautiful symphony in terms of mathematical intervals. You know, it's like taking a Mozart piece and saying, oh, well, it went from a third to a fourth to a second to a fifth. To a... It's like, that's true, but you just killed the music. <laughs> and Mozart, by the way, was very sequential. Was, there's a lot of math in Mozart's music, but, but that's not the point. The point is, music lives. God, it's not about, well, I've got this concept. Sometimes I wonder if out of the 60s and 70s and 80s, we, we so badly wanted to make God the concept that we could understand. And so we served people a God that was easy to grasp. It's just four spiritual laws. It's just these little boxes. It's just if you check this, it's just if you know this. And look, those were all wonderful things, and God used it to do so much good in the world. But inadvertently, it gives us the impression that we've got God all figured out. And if I could check this box and this box and this box, then life will work this way and this way and this way. But none of that inspires worship. You come with humble hearts because there's more to God than I know. There's more to God than I understand. And He's not God the concept. He's God the Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who, because of Jesus, all of us who were outsiders are now insiders, can now pray, Our Father who art in heaven. That's who He is. I don't know if you've seen the movie, The King's Speech, but um, there's this amazing scene. Really, it's two pairs of scenes. But, uh, in the early part of the movie, the dad is, is um, reading the goodnight story to his girls. And it's a really sweet scene. He's like, Dad, you know, tell us this story. And he's trying to get through it, and he's stumbling through it. He's talking about penguins or something like that. You know, and it's, it's sweet. He's seated on the floor with his girls trying to tell them a story, and they're listening. He's their dad. And then at the end of the movie, he becomes... The king. And there's this remarkable scene where all of a sudden he's in his same house, but now he's the king. And the daughters aren't saying, Daddy, read us. The daughters all of a sudden go, and they, they curtsy or they kneel before him, and, and he walks. He's kind of nervous, like, I don't know what just happened, you know, but I'm king. And he's walking through it. This verse, come let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. The Creator God, who's King, is our God, our Shepherd, our Father. That means I bow. That means I kneel. See, one of the things I think that is threatening the modern worship movement is sentimentality. Sentimentality is a cheap substitute for real relationship with God. We've turned relationship with God that is rich and full of 
sovereignty and reverence and holiness and love into a syrupy PG-13 bad B-grade romantic comedy where Jesus is my boyfriend and I just feel this and I just love this and I just want to look in your eyes and rest in your arms and it's just so ooey-gooey, 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 ooey-gooey. So, well, where is the moment where we humble ourselves before God? Where is the moment that we say the God that you call our Father is the great King? See, this, this, these two themes keep playing off of one another. The great God is our God. And our God is the great God. The Creator God is our covenant God. And our covenant God is the Creator God. So we bow. We humble ourselves. Look, I appreciate that in worship we can have intimacy with the Lord. But real intimacy with God is not sentimentality. It's not syrupy. Anyone who's been in a marriage longer than a few years knows the difference between syrupy and real intimacy. (laughs) You know? And all the older couples in the room are tell me about it. (laughs) And then maybe you see young couples, young lovers, stargaze, and you're like, oh, isn't that sweet? Just you wait. It's not that it gets worse, it just gets better. It's different. It's richer. There's some history there. There's some conflict you've seen in those eyes. There's some tears you've seen in those eyes. Sentimentality is a cheap substitute for intimacy. The psalmist is not asking us to be syrupy and sentimental about God. He's asking us to really know that if you are the people of His pasture, We come with humble hearts. We bow. The third stanza takes an unexpected twist. Because these first two stanzas have a lot of similarities. And you're like, oh, this is great. But then in the back half of verse 7, it says, if only you would listen to his voice right now. Like, uh uh-oh. Did the songwriter just get mad? Don't harden your hearts like you did at Meribah, like you did when you were at Masai in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me and scrutinized me, even though they had already seen my acts. For 40 years, I despised that generation. Yikes! What happened to joyful singing? And, and I said, these people have twisted hearts. They don't know my ways. And so in anger, I swore they will never enter my place of rest. The end. <laughs> what? What? Dude, songwriting 101, man. If you're going to have a dark, angry-filled bridge, you've got to come back to a hopeful chorus, right? I mean, that's like, that's like 101. How can you leave the song hanging like that? It's like uh, Rachmaninoff's, uh, what, whatever, the, the, um, the, the funeral dirge, or you know, well, maybe it's Mozart's funeral. You know, it sort of ends in this minor thing. You're like, oh, are we really ending right here? Why? Because worship... Corporate worship is more than what we have to say to God. It's what He has to say to us. Corporate worship is more than our singing and shouting and doing. It's about His speaking and our listening. And so, this last point here is come with listening hearts. We come with joyful hearts. We come with humble hearts. We come with listening hearts. Do you know in the Old Testament, the word for worshiper and the word for servant are related words? Obadiah's name, for example. Obadiah means the worshiper or servant of Yahweh. If, I suspect if you would ask any of us from our generation, what does it mean to be a worshiper? 
we would say, oh, it jump, like just passionate, like crazy, like be able to go two hours. And there's some truth to that. But I suspect if you would ask someone in the Old Testament, what does it mean to be a worshiper? They would have said, oh, be obedient to Yahweh. Listen to him. Don't harden your heart. Faithfully obey. Actually, Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? He said, you are my friends if you do what I command. Oh, wait, I thought friendship with God was a sentimental feeling. That I just sort of feel it, right? I just feel God as my friend today. I am a friend of God. I am a friend. We should really, the last line should be, I'm a friend of God. So Lord, help me to obey you. You know, it doesn't sing very well, does it? That'd be like one of those songs where the ending's a little bit like, whoa. But to be a worshiper is to be an obedient servant of God. It's more than just what we have to say. It's about listening and responding to what He has to say. I, 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 I think about this because I have um, realized that in the quote-unquote modern worship movement, we've put so much emphasis on what we feel about God. I feel Him near to me. I feel like friendship with God is real strong today. I just feel it. I feel like I'm a good worshiper um, right now. You say, well, the problem is at some point, and I frequently talk to young people in my office who come into my office at some point and say, I don't feel it anymore. I'm wondering what's wrong. I feel far from God. I feel distant. I feel like God is not my friend. And I sometimes, if it's right, will say in that moment, well, keep being a servant of God. Keep following. Keep obeying. Because to be a worshiper is to be a listener. To be a, worship, to be a friend of God is to be the one who obeys. Is to be one who listens and obeys. Not to be one who has sentimental feelings about God. Those things will come and go. But we keep following, keep listening, we keep walking because the Creator God is our covenant God. And I keep walking, I keep listening. Ross Parsley used to say, hypocrisy is not when our actions don't line up with our feelings, but when our actions don't line up with our convictions. I think that's true, isn't it? Well, I don't feel like this or that. Well, but what do you believe about God? Is this the Creator God who's also the covenant God? Is the great God our God? Is our God the great God? Then keep listening. Keep obeying. Keep following. The feelings will ebb and flow. How do we do this? What does it mean for us to really live this way and, and to, to, to be in corporate worship like this. The first thing I want to say about that is I think there is something communal about our worship. The language in here. Come and let us. Come and let us. Come and let us. The Old Testament reading today was from Deuteronomy 12 where it says, look, don't, don't go setting up altars and places of worship willy-nilly. You know, there are specific places that you're supposed to go worship. And at those specific places, come with your sons and your daughters. Make this a family affair. Come and, then, and, and worship there. Now, you say, well, Glenn, but doesn't that change in the New Testament? That's true. 
Jesus becomes the new temple, and so geographic location doesn't matter as much. But then Paul says something else about the temple. He says, you all are the temple. Now our English translations, unfortunately, were not written by any southern translators, so they just say, you are the temple. No, you're not. You are the temple. But really, it's a plural you in the Greek. So if these were southern translators writing our English verses, they'd say, y'all, y'all are where God dwells. So geographic location doesn't matter, but it's still where the people of God gather. It's not a solo deal. Now, as I was thinking this week, like, what is this maybe a little bit like? Maybe it's a little bit like meals. Uh, I, I grew up in a home where we most every night would have dinners together as a family. And a family dinner table was where the family talked about their day, is where the family fought, is where the family worked out life. It's a family dinner table. And um, it's not that you can't have food anywhere else. It's not like if you were out in town, you could, oh, no food allowed when you're not in the house. What? No, you can eat wherever you want. You, if you're out and about, eat here, have lunch here, grab a quick bite here, grab that. It's just that there's this one meal that centers us in a place. And every family needs a house to become a home. It centers us. Place matters. We, we, we like to sort of think that, look, corporate worship doesn't matter because I can worship wherever I am. But look, the gathering of the people of God is our family worship table. It makes us kind of learn to say, yeah, look, you can worship God on the trail, you can worship God in the car, you can worship God in all of your day. In fact, you ought to. It's great. Be filled with the Spirit and sing to one another. Do all of that. But don't forsake, Hebrews says, the gathering together. Because this is where it all gets formed. This is where we come together. There's something communal about it. But secondly, I've maybe kind of been sidestepping this by talking about hearts. There's something very physical about the words in this psalm. I mean, listen to some of these verbs. Sing out loud. Raise a joyful shout. Shout songs of joy. Bow down. Kneel. And I, I, these are such active words. And, and I know, I know. We all have different personalities. And I don't for a second believe that he who shouts the loudest is worshiping the hardest. I, I don't believe that. But I do suspect that there's something about our physicality that can lead the way for our hearts in worship. That our physical actions can lead our hearts into worship. There's something that can happen when you come in you say, well, oh, look, my heart is down. Why so? But then all of a sudden you start praying, why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your, you start singing. I mean, I think, I think if we sat here and waited until we felt like singing, we may not sing some weeks. We've all been in moments where you sit with someone who's overcome with sadness or grief and all of a sudden you don't know what to do. And you say, well, maybe we should let's sing. And then all of a sudden in that moment you begin to let your actions lead your heart and you sing. Same love that set the captives free. The same love that opened eyes to see is calling us all by name. He is calling us all by name. You're like, yeah, boy, He is calling us, isn't He? And I sort of felt alone before I came in this morning, but I'm realizing He's... The same God that spread the heavens wide, 
The same God that was crucified is calling. Like, wow, yeah. Lord, you are. And you begin to put those words in your lips and you begin to sing them and say them. And something begins to happen in your heart. I don't know how that is. I'm not a psychologist. I don't, I don't get how this works. But we do things like this even in our normal daily life. You ever been sitting at your desk and you're staring at the screen and you're like, I don't know what to do. Or you're staring at your phone knowing you've got to work out this deal with the client. You don't know what to say. And you're like, I don't know what to do. You say, you know what? I just need a walk. You go for a walk. You come back. And you're like, okay, I think I know what to do now. Right? You, you, there, there, sometimes the physical has a way of triggering things in our hearts and in our minds. I don't know why or how that works, but it just does. And I think the psalmists were onto something. I think they kind of knew, look, just when we gather, we begin to sing. We begin to shout. We begin to let our actions lead our hearts into worship before God. Finally, with all of this, A joyful heart, a humble heart, a listening heart, it's not something we just sort of conjure up. It's something that comes as we learn to behold Jesus. And if you ask yourself, well, Glenn, how how do we, why do we say that the Creator God is the covenant God, that the great God is our loving God? How do we know this? How, How do I say this? Why would we say this? As Christians, we say, we would say this because of Jesus. John's Gospel, in the first chapter, John says, look, we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father in Jesus, full of grace and truth. In the Old Testament, there's no word for the presence of God. There's this word, though, for the face of God. I like that. I can't give you my presence, but I can show you my face. It's much more personal, isn't it? There is a word, though, for glory, the kabod, the weight of God's presence. It's almost a manifestation. But John says that this glory of God is found in who? Jesus. And if Jesus is where God's glory is found, and Jesus is the one whose face has turned to us, how do we behold this Creator God and this covenant God? In Jesus. Rather than making glory something that you kind of drum up, woohoo, there was glory! Okay, maybe. Or you could say, you know what? There was Jesus. And we gathered together and we turned our hearts and our eyes toward Jesus. And as we turned our hearts and our eyes toward Jesus, we beheld the glory of God, the face of God, the Creator God, the covenant God. And that gave us hearts that are humble. And out of that humble hearts, that get turned into gratitude. And that gratitude turned into joyful hearts. And that joyful heart erupted into praise. Maybe this morning, we need to work through this Psalm 95 backwards. We start by saying, God, forgive us for not having hearts that are listening hearts. Hearts that are hard, hearts that are stubborn, hearts that just want to go our own way. And then out of that comes humble hearts, joyful hearts, and praise. Maybe this is part of how we become a worshiping people. So let's come to the table of the Lord this morning. We're going to take a few moments and we'll, we'll receive communion together. And, and then after that we'll, we'll sing. Instead of um, doing our normal thing where we get the elements and, and huddle up and pray, we'll, um, we'll stand and receive them wherever you are and, and 
begin singing with gratitude and grateful hearts. But as we take a couple minutes here as Steve plays, um, to just um, maybe let the Holy Spirit search your own heart and say, God, where have I been uh, not had a listening heart? Um, Again, working through this psalm backwards. Where have I sort of had a hardened heart? Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for hanging on to this or that. Would you give me a soft heart again? So let's, let's pray that way quietly where we are this morning.